0: through the preaching of God's Word, I want to invite you to take your copy of your Bibles and please turn with me to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, and I want to invite you, if you are able to, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. These are the words of our Savior. Father God, Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your revealed truth. Father, we pray that your truth, your word would be made known in this worship service this morning. We pray that the Holy Spirit would impress these things upon all of our hearts, dear God, that we may reflect upon these things, meditate upon these things, remember them, recall them in times of Need in times of discouragement, dear God, that we may live your truth visibly here in this world. Dear God, your word says that the Christian is to be such that the hope that they have during affliction, during times of trial, during persecutions, is to be such that all the world can see it. Dear God, we pray by your grace, your loving kindness, you have for your church, that you would bestow these graces upon us. It's in the name of your beloved Son we pray, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. It has been reported, and this is nothing new to you, I'm sure, but it has been reported that uh, depression rates, rates of uh, anxiety, mental illness, and, and, and these types of things uh, in the United States have increased nearly 10 percentage points within the last decade, that is the last 10 years. Uh, globally, nearly 4 in 10 adults, uh, that is people age 15 and older, uh, nearly 4 in 10 either endure significant depression or anxiety themselves or have a close Friend or family member who suffers from it. Some research has demonstrated that around 22% of Northern American adults have experienced depression or anxiety so extreme that they could not continue regular daily activities for two weeks or longer. And this statistic is nearly matched in Western Europe and other parts of the world as well. In my own personal life, my own personal Ministry experience, I have found, I've talked to, I've counseled uh, a countless amount of people who have uh, reported to me that they had either battled at one point in their lives or were currently battling some form of depression uh, to one extent or another, or anxiety or something like that. This is something that you have all likely. Encountered. It's something that you've probably had to deal with in your lives as well, whether it was someone you know, a family member, a, a child, or perhaps even you and yourself. You found yourself in such a state of emotional distress. Now, what everyone wants to do whenever we identify a problem is we want to find something to blame. You see, our culture... And the media, our government, we are uh, not really that good at providing solutions to things. We are very, very good at pointing our fingers, finding scapegoats, finding different things that we can look at to explain away the issues that we deal with. Now, a number of things have been pointed to as uh, perhaps maybe this or that is is the direct cause of, of some of these issues that we face, whether it's... The increase of stress that our uh, fast-paced modern world uh, brings, or if it's an increase of technology that uh, produces a a heightened uh, rate of loneliness or isolation, Uh, particularly during the time of COVID, this was often pointed to as, as a reason why people were going through these mental trials. And I am Perfectly willing to grant that these factors and and so much more uh, are contributing uh, to these issues. But I think that it is unmistakable that, particularly in the Western world, in the United States of America, we have seen an increase in secularism. An increase in secularism. Now, what do I mean? I mean an increase an increasing belief in a worldview which denies, or at the very least is highly skeptical of religion and asserts that religious beliefs or religious teachings have, uh, should have no place in the public square, they should have no place in politics, and, and especially, especially education, which is interesting considering our Sunday school conversations this morning. Uh, at any rate, the reality is that the vast majority of people in our day, particularly the young people, some of your children, some of your grandchildren, have been raised or are being raised in an environment that is completely enthralled with this kind of secular ideology. The predominant view of the culture is that there is no God that all there is to life is what you see, there is nothing more than the natural and the material world, and when you die, that's it, it's all over, we throw dirt on you, and if you question this, well then you're a fool, you're you're, you're ignorant, you're backwards, or or whatever it is. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it is my belief that as society at large decreases its understanding of who the true God is, and who we are in relation to him, then it is no surprise that we find such high rates of things such as anxiety or depression in our day. The fact of the matter is that God made the human heart. God made the human heart. God designed the human heart, and he did so with purpose. God designed the human heart to find its ultimate delight and satisfaction in Him, in God. You see, our hearts are too big to find their ultimate delight, to find their ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world. We were not made to find our supreme and ultimate delight in the material world, but rather in the personal God who created the material world. And when our culture, when we, in our sin, continue to deny this, to deny God, the fool says in his heart, There is no God. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We push God away far from us, far from our thinking, far from our education. You see, at that point, life loses its foundation for any meaning, loses its foundation for purpose, loses any foundation for wisdom and loses any foundation for joy, for joy itself. You've heard the the saying before, I'm sure that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what we were made for. Anything less will never satisfy us because we are not fulfilling our ultimate purpose. Therefore, I say that to combat these issues of our day, the depression, the sadness, the loneliness, the anxiety, all of these different things, the solution is going to be found in the God of Scripture. And so this morning we are going to be looking at what is one of my personal favorite sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ in all the Gospels. Uh, you, you know, every time that I reflect upon these words, I am always struck by how powerful they are, and they always give me such. So it's great encouragement. And uh, what's interesting, you know, I was talking with someone this morning. I said, you know, one of the worst things that can happen to us in the Christian life is we hear certain passages or certain words of Scripture so often that they can become like noise, meaningless. I'm sure everyone in this room, if right now I were to ask you to join me in the Lord's Prayer, we could all recite the Lord's Prayer by heart. But when's the last time we ever sat down and thought about those words, meditated upon those words? and my own personal bible study experience has shown me that whenever i take a text of scripture and i and, and i go deep into it and i break things apart and i see why does how does this phrase work with that phrase and i and i and i'm in the text and i'm praying for the holy spirit's illumination the 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 more closely that i look at any given passage of scripture it's almost like it becomes even greater even more meaningful it's like it's, you know i how many times have I read these words and, and then I look and, and there's, there's meaning, there, there's, there's power, there's uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's supernatural and that's exactly what happened as of late when I was studying these words of Jesus again. I'm just so struck by their power. And, and really what I think that this passage of scripture does is it proves a consistent theme that we have in the Bible. That the wisdom of God proves foolishness, the wisdom of man. Because you see, Jesus' solution to a troubled heart is not the same solution that our secular culture has to offer. Thereby, God chose what is simple out of the world to shame the wise. And I think Jesus just emphasizes that or demonstrates that again in these words. And so as we go into these things, of course, the three rules of biblical interpretation... Context, context context we need to we need to remember the context of the situation, although obviously in our Bibles we read this as the start of chapter fourteen. We know that chapter and verse numbers were added uh, later they were not it 's not part of the original text, and so it 's not like there 's this big shift, big change between chapter thirteen and fourteen it 's one continuous uh, flow of thought and, and conversation that Christ is having with the disciples. And so these words come to us in what is known as the farewell discourse. This is Jesus' last night with his disciples before his crucifixion. And if you go back and you read these things, you see that it's sort of taken a, a somber tone, although there's always like this glimmer of hope throughout it all. Jesus has announced his betrayal, that Judas would betray him. Uh, Judas has gone out to actually accomplish it. And Jesus has just told his disciples that very soon he was going to be leaving them. Saying in chapter 13, verse 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, and so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. And so you see, Jesus, he is speaking to them of his impending death. Jesus was going to be delivered over into the hands of his enemies. They were going to treat him as a vile criminal. He would be spread out before the people, and there he would hang upon a cursed cross until he breathed his last. Now, we as Christians, we look back, we've read the Gospels, we know the full story. We know that Jesus, he's going to rise from the dead, that he is going to ascend into heaven, that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon the church at Pentecost, and, and, you know, the rest is history. We all know that. We know the story. But I I don't know if we think about this enough. It's important to remember the disciples at this point in history did not have all the information that we have. And so think about this. If Jesus is arrested on a Thursday night, crucified the next Friday, and then he does not appear to the disciples again until Sunday, you, your calculation can, can differ. We don't know the exact number, I don't think. But you know that's about 60 hours or so of utter disarray, of utter confusion, not knowing what is going on. Their Jesus, their, their leader, their friend, their, their rabbi, their teacher, who they had so much love for, they had so much hope in and faith in. They believed that this was their Messiah, the Christ, that great blessing was going to come from him. And now, their, their Christ, their Messiah, the, the, the prophet that was promised to Moses, their king, who was going to usher them into this era of, of great blessing, They see that he is being condemned by the rulers, that he's being executed. Now, as that's going on, you have to think about how incredibly troubling of a time uh, this is going to be after Jesus' arrest, prior to his resurrection. And what's interesting is that the last thing that Jesus says before chapter 14, verse 1, Is when he prophesies to Peter, telling Peter that he was going to deny Jesus three times. When we read about Peter in the New Testament, we see Peter as a man who is full of zeal. He's full of passion, energy, vigor for the Lord. But we see how often he was so misguided. Uh, You know, chapter eighteen, when Jesus is arrested. Peter thinks that he's doing the right thing by taking his sword and and striking uh, one of the servants who was arresting Jesus. And and of course, Jesus rebukes him for that action. But my point is, this is a man with such great zeal for Jesus, so much passion that he's willing to physically fight uh, for him, potentially resulting in his own arrest or perhaps even death. And yet Jesus' words will be fulfilled, which, which are going to say that Peter will deny him three times. You, and you have to think about what great guilt, what great shame, turmoil was going to come upon Peter after that happened. So it is in this exact context where Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave. I'm leaving. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. This, this context of just doom, despair, when Jesus makes some of the most beautiful words you will ever hear in chapter 14 and verse 1. Our Lord says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, we were just talking about the great turmoil, agony, confusion, despair that was going to be coming their way, the immense difficulty that they were going to have to face. And in Jesus' farewell discourse, he, he is preparing his disciples for this this period of time, and of course, he is at the same time giving and, and teaching things which remain vitally important for the church at all ages. And Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, this is an important word to hear. You see, as human beings, We are basically enslaved to our hearts. We are so controlled by what goes on in there. All of our thoughts, all of our actions, all of our decisions, all of our emotions, our affections, proceed ultimately from our hearts. Now, in our modern, sophisticated, secular culture, this gets laughed at. People say, what are you talking about? The heart, that what pumps blood. It it's doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with that stuff. But the, the, the reality is, human beings are more than just mere molecules. Atoms fizzing and, and, and buzzing around. You see, inside every human being is that, that spiritual cavity, that spiritual component. The soul or the heart. The heart in scripture is that innermost secret and hidden compartment or component of a man or a woman. So often in Scripture, we read about people thinking things in their hearts. Now, we associate thinking, the intellect, with the brain. What we have to remember is even our brains, our intellects, are subject to the state of our hearts. It is when our hearts are corrupted by sin, that we plan in our minds evil. And it is when our hearts are enlightened by the truth of the gospel that we in our minds plan obedience and love and devotion to God. So it is very important that Jesus tells us, let not your hearts be troubled. He's looking at that innermost part of who you are the, the, the deepest, most hidden, and secret element of each and every one of you. And he is saying, in there, in that very center of your being, the truest form of who you are, do not be afflicted. Do not be stirred up. Do not be troubled. I think it is appropriate to say that this is not only a sweet word of the Savior here, But this is indeed a commandment from our sovereign Lord and Master because throughout Scripture we are encouraged, we are admonished, we are pushed towards contentment. Contentment is God's will for our lives. Discontentment, dissatisfaction is treated as though it were a grievous sin. I remember I read a a book by the Puritan Thomas Watson called The Art of Divine Contentment. And I, and I remember when I read that, just how struck I was with, with shame over the types of things in my own personal life that will lead me to discontentment. It's like all the tremendous blessings that God has given me, all the love that He has shown for me. I mean, I mean my own salvation, for crying out loud, and yet I let just such small, such insignificant things bring me to a state of, of mind where it's like, does, does any of that stuff even matter to you? I mean, when, you, you know, you talk about how God has called you out of darkness into his light and, and you're a child of God, you've been born again, uh, bought with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. And, and when, when you believe that when you die, you're going to leave this world, you're going to spend eternity with him. And then, you know, traffic or, you know, a piece of technology uh, isn't working, there's something going wrong at at home or whatever it is, and it's like, you're going to get all fixated on something so small, something so insignificant, it's like, does any of that stuff matter? Does any of that stuff truly mean anything to you? Because you would think that our salvation would be so precious to us, so, so meaningful to us, that it would outshine any of the other ailments that we experience. And so Jesus, he tells us not to be stormed up, not to be afflicted, not to be troubled in our hearts. And you see, this is where most of our modern psychology is so off base. Uh, someone comes to a psychiatrist and says, you know, I'm, I'm depressed, I'm contemplating suicide. And the ultimate remedy, the, the, the number one solution that this psychiatrist can Can point to is to put this person on some kind of drugs. And then, well, now they can't sleep, so they need trazodone to offset that, and they need this drug to offset that drug, and it's just like this never ending cycle, and and you never really get better. You just get worse and worse and worse, and you become dependent upon these things, and somewhere there's someone getting rich off of it all, and it's like you're never helped, you're never benefited. By by trying to to go after this with this secular idea that, you know, it's it's something up here, but you never address what's in the heart. You see, what is the problem? It's that our mental health institutions, and especially our education, is almost universally secular. They don't understand what the Bible teaches about the heart about what's inside every single one of us. They'll say such and such an individual has a chemical imbalance in their brain. And I'm not denying the reality of that situation. Obviously, of course, there are times when those types of things need to be addressed. But I definitely believe that the ultimate root of a person's mental ailment lies not in their brains, but proceeds from within their hearts. And the reality is that no secularist can identify this problem because they don't have the worldview which will allow them to see this thing that is so vital, that is so important. When you go to a a therapist, a psychiatrist, if they don't have a Christian worldview, they're never going to talk to you about your sin. They're never going to talk to you about your sin. And if, if you don't start there, never going to be helped never going to be helped so okay then we understand that the issues of anxiety we understand that the issues of depression and all sorts of afflictions proceed from a troubled heart and again i remind you of the context what would be a greater cause for affliction than when the, this person jesus You're one of Jesus' disciples. And he, you've given him so much trust. You've known him as a friend. You love him. You follow him. And then he is betrayed by someone from your group. He's betrayed by by someone from your group. And then he's given over to the rulers. And he is condemned as a criminal. And he's executed. Put on false charges. Dying a shameful death of crucifixion. While people cast lots for his clothing. You see... What could create turmoil, what could create agony in the heart of a person more than something like this? You believe that this man, Jesus, held the, the world, held the future in his hands. And here he's become a victim, a casualty of the world, a casualty of, of the moving of history. Nothing could create distress like this. Jesus knows that his disciples are going to have to face this very thing, and so he proposes a solution to the problem. And he does this because he cares about them. He, Jesus Christ loves his followers. He does not regard them as a nameless, faceless group, but rather he regards them as sheep whom he knows as their good shepherd. And Jesus does not want his flock to become worried, does not want his flock to become weary as he goes to accomplish his great work on the cross, the, the, the final hour. And so he gives them what is the ultimate remedy towards all anxiety that a human being could ever face. And it does not come in the form of a pill. It does not come in a potion. It does not come in a bottle. It does not come as something that you roll up and smoke. It does not proceed from anything that the secular world has to offer. But it proceeds, it comes from heaven itself. He says to his beloved disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I want to tell you that this right here, these words, these are the words of the living God. These are not the opinions of some philosopher. There's not the musings of some writer. This is the word of the living God speaking to each and every one of us right now. When Jesus talked about the scriptures, he says, have you not read what God spoke to you saying? That's what this is. The Lord is speaking to us, and He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Nothing, if you, if, uh, let me add this stipulation. If you are one of God's children, nothing is going to comfort you more than this. And already, there are some of us in here who are, who are thinking that there's, there's absolutely no way. Thinking there." There is no way that just by simply believing in Jesus, by by simply doing the Christian thing by by believing in God, that that's going to somehow take away my stress, take away my depression, take away my anxiety. You say, I I am a Christian, and yet I am so troubled, there is so much that ails me, so much that afflicts me, so much that is wrong with my life that afflicts my heart. And and you think that just believing in Jesus is like just going to take away this from me? And I tell you calmly, I tell you respectfully, that yes, I do. Because it's what Jesus says here. He he, he paints it as like it's almost an exchange. It's like he's got these these two things here. It's like you can let your heart be troubled or you can believe in God, believe also in me. It's like these two things are direct opposites. It's like you choose one and not the other. And and yet, does not almost all of our own experience tell tell us how, how difficult this is? Tell us how, how hard this is. One of the things I, I love doing, I love studying church history, I love studying some of the men that, that God has, has used in the past to, to build his kingdom. And, and what I find interesting is as, as that some of those uh, great names in church history are names of men who battled with severe depression in their lives. Now, isn't that interesting? There's a, a lovely story wonderful story in the life of, of the German reformer, Martin Luther. Uh, it's told, uh, significant ailments in his life, and it's told that at one point he was battling some bout of, of depression. His dear wife, Katie Luther, approaches him, she's wearing a black dress, and he asks her, what, why, are you, why are you wearing that? Are, are you going to a funeral? And her response was to say, No but since you act as though God is dead, I wanted to join you in the morning. You see, this this great herald of of, of gospel truth, Martin Luther himself, faces such severe depression that he needs the love and help of his wife to, to help him through it. But I love what her response is. Since you act as though God is dead, you see, what's the underlying thing being stated there? That the, the only logical conclusion for why a Christian would act that way to be so depressed would be that God had died. That would be the only thing that should cause a Christian to have such despair. And yet, obviously, as we all know, God, God cannot die. Uh, any of, of the children here could tell you that. God cannot die. And so you get the picture and what's being stated. That the only reason for you to be depressed as a Christian would be if something logically impossible took place. Because the fact of the matter is God lives forever. He is always taking care of his children. He is always shepherding his sheep. His providence is ever governing the affairs of our lives. We are always being helped by him, being loved by him. And it's like yeah, that's true, but I just we need to be reminded of it so often. And I think Jesus even knows that we need to be reminded of this so often. Uh, we need to be exhorted towards a firmer faith uh, because he tells us three times in chapter 14 to believe, to believe in him. It's like, what is more basic? What is more foundational to the Christian life than believing in Christ? And yet we need constant reminders of it the prince of preachers Charles Spurgeon himself he dealt with great depression in his life he makes this comment based upon the fact that thrice in chapter 14 we are told to believe he says if believing in Jesus you are still troubled believe in him again yet more thoroughly and heartily if even that should not take away the perturbation of your mind, believe in him to a third degree and continue to do so with increasing simplicity and force. It's like, yeah, that, that, that's, that's it right there. You know, people, as, a, as someone who's in the ministry, people come up to me all the time and, and they ask me about uh, you know, different things, uh, a particular sin in their lives or, th- or they have some sort of trouble or affliction and, uh, you know, whatever the problem is. And it's like I always seem to be giving the same advice. I always say, read your scriptures and pray. And it's like, there's got to be something more. It's like, no, no, no. Tell me some, t- something else. What, what is it that I... I I can do about it. And it's like, of course, there are times where there are just practical steps that we need to take. But before we even think about that, it's, are you in the Word? Are are you in the Word? Are, Are you spending time with the Lord in prayer? And it's like, no, I'm not. Well, go back. Go back to those foundational things. I mean, just your simple... Acts of of duty before God, just just trusting him, listening to him speak to you in his word, going to him in prayer. Those two things, and I promise you, you will see a change. You will see a change. And as your wisdom is increased uh, by the constant refreshment of the word of God, your path will be lightened. That's what it is that you need to do next. May we always have this truth present in our minds. Let us be fixed upon this daily. You know, how often does the devil, does the world, seek to take our affections and and our attention off of Christ and onto some worldly thing? It's like whenever we are looking at that stuff, we are looking at the trouble in our lives or, or what it is that we have to face, and we're not looking to Christ. It's like that's when our hearts become troubled. They're, I mean, a, a loved one dies. We come into financial difficulty. We, we have a health struggle or whatever the case may be. And what, what is the natural thing to do? It's to dwell upon the material elements of our difficulty. And, and we fail to recognize where God is throughout it all. We fail to recognize God's sovereignty over that situation, we fail to recognize that the promises Jesus makes to us remain true. We fail to remember those things, and our hearts become troubled. I was having a conversation with a woman recently, and, and I said that what anxiety is, if we just break it apart, look at it for what it is, anxiety is when we distrust in the sovereignty of God. And it seems that Jesus agrees For he says that the solution to a troubled heart is a belief in his Father and a belief in him. When some trial and some affliction comes your way, dear beloved, remember this. You are a justified sinner. Jesus Christ took your sin upon himself on the cross. And when God gave you the precious gift of faith by your believing in him, you received the gift of eternal life. Now, how insane is it for someone who has all of these blessings to have faith, to have eternal life, have relationship with God? What a fool would you have to be to let some momentary affliction affect you so greatly? And yet, what fools we all must be, for we need constant reminders to believe in Christ. I, I heard one theologian speak one time, and he said, you know something, I... I cannot conceive in my mind of a Christian who is just fundamentally unhappy. Because it's like an an unhappy Christian is is just a contradiction in terms. Let us notice something about Jesus' phraseology here. He says, Believe in God, believe also in me. Now here he does something that we absolutely cannot pass over. He essentially equates... Belief in God with a belief in himself. He sets those two things on the same level. Uh, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. You see, that is not a statement that a, a mere mortal, that a mere man could, could really ever make, I don't think. You know, the, there are so many who would say, Jesus was a good guy, he was a good teacher, he's these things, but you know, he, he was not God. He, you know, he didn't rise from the dead. You know, away with all of that nonsense. Jesus leaves no room for that. You know, that is the the error of the Muslims who say that Jesus was a mere Rasul, that is, a mere prophet, but that he was not God. When you, when you hear a Muslim speak, they will say, Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. They, 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 they treat him as a prophet, but they don't treat him as God incarnate. Because here's the thing, if Jesus was not God, then... His statement here is, is, is insane. It, it becomes almost blasphemous. And such an incredibly blasphemous statement could not come from someone who was a prophet of God or a good teacher or a righteous man. Such a crime would exclude them from all those titles. So away with all those who want to lay their hands upon the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, while distorting the truth of who he was. The fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ equates belief in God with a belief in Him. So if we're going to believe in Jesus, we need to believe in Him rightly and correctly. That old trilemma, C.S. Lewis, rings true. Jesus, liar, lunatic, Lord. Those are your three options. Those are your three options. It's important, I think, that we stop and recognize this because sometimes these kind of things just, just go over our heads because we're just so used to reading exalted language about Christ that we don't really stop and and pay attention to it. So I just wanted to take some time to think about that. But at any rate, remember once again, Jesus places as the sole remedy and cure for anxiety, ultimately, a belief in the Christian faith. And a, a thought came to my mind as I was studying these things. We believe, as, as Christians, that Jesus Christ was the God-man, that he has a, a true, perfect human nature, a true, divine nature. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's not a strange combination of the two. He's not a hollow shell that God possessed. Jesus is, is the God-man, It true, divine, true human, these two natures being undivided. And so if you think about it, Jesus Christ, in his life, the Bible says that he was tempted, that he was afflicted just as we are. Just as we are. And, and I would even go so far as to say that I don't think anyone in this life was ever troubled the same way Jesus was. Because no, none of us, no matter how difficult our lives may be, are ever going to be the sin bearers for our people on the cross, suffering under the wrath of our beloved Father. I don't think anyone suffered in this world as much as Jesus did. And so, think with me here. If Jesus is who we say he is, if he is the God-man, if he is God incarnate in the human flesh, and he suffered more than any, any man ever did, he being God, would you not think then that he, of, of anyone you could ever ask would truly know the perfect and ultimate cure the ultimate remedy for affliction for a troubled heart you see I think that Jesus would be the perfect person to ask when it comes with dealing with, with affliction in our lives and so what is it that Jesus says is the solution to this well he says believe in God believe also in me we read in scripture about the Dread And and the the torment that Jesus endured as as he contemplated the hour of, of the cross. And Peter in his first epistle, what does he say about Christ? That when he was persecuted, when his enemies came after him, he did not pay back evil for evil. He did not revile for reviling. But what did Jesus do? Peter says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I'll say that again. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I think that's another way of saying he believed in God. He, he, he believed in God. And if that is what Jesus did in his great hour of affliction, why would you look for another remedy? I mean, if that was enough for Christ himself, why, why are you going to look for, for, for pleasure or, or for sin or for substances or whatever they may be? To cure your troubled heart. That is not what the God-man looked for. He believed in his Father. And if God is our Heavenly Father, then when the hour of affliction comes, it calls upon us to continue to trust Him. That is exactly what Jesus wants us to do. This is going, I think, to be especially helpful. Remember, again, the the disciples during during this time, during the hour of Jesus' passion. Jesus is like, if, if you would just, just trust in me, just, just believe in me, then during this time they, they would have been able to remain uh, hopeful during the great trouble that was going to come. You know, in Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection, he rebukes his disciples who were sad and disillusioned about this. He says, "Oh, foolish ones! And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory? It's like Jesus is saying, you should have known all along what was going to happen. You should have went back to the scriptures. You should have went back to trusting in me. Back to trusting in God. And you would not be troubled like you are now. And it's the same thing for us. It's the same thing for us. Continue to look to Christ. Continue to look... To his promises continue to go to him in prayer entrust ourselves to him and then after jesus says this he moves on to what i think is one of the most poked at and discussed texts in all the new testament and i pray that by the spirit of god we can handle it faithfully jesus says john 14 verse 2 he says in my father's house are many rooms If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And so starting with that phrase, In my Father's house are many rooms. What is it that Jesus is saying there? It seems plain to me, and this is the most common interpretation throughout church history, is that Jesus is referring to the eternal state where believers will dwell with God forever. Notice this is in the context of Jesus' leaving to go and prepare a place for his disciples. His leaving is his death. Jesus says, in my Father's house, in this place of which I speak, there are many rooms. Many, many rooms. What could be meant by that? What's interesting is, if you look at uh, literature from this time, from the uh, era of Second Temple Judaism, things like the Book of Enoch and such, which are not, not scripture, but they actually do give us insight into at least the thinking and the thought process of this era, uh, we read about eternal heavenly dwelling places of the saints. The, the word that's translated as rooms here, we read about the rooms of, of the elect and and, and I think Jesus is, is sort of drawing from that language something that they would understand to, to teach them biblical truth. And so the simplest explanation of what Christ says here, which is the most common, is probably one that you've been taught, is that Jesus is saying, in the eternal state, where the place where I go to prepare for you, where you will be forever, there's many rooms. There is going to be enough For all of you, there is going to be ample provision for all of God's elect, for each and every saint. Every single one who is saved by God and and spends eternity with him is going to have somewhere there, have a physical place to dwell. That's going to be sufficient for them. You're not going to be lacking in anything. Jesus says there will be many rooms. Many rooms suggesting that God is going to save a large, large number of people who will spend eternity with him. So let's think again about what he says here. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus said in verse 36 of chapter 13 that where he is going The disciples will follow afterward and in my opinion i think this is what he's referring to when he says would i have told you that i go to prepare a place for you notice jesus says i am preparing a place for you preparing a place now is this suggesting that jesus is going to go back to his father cut up some boards drive some nails and and physically build dwellings uh, for people in heaven i i don't think so I think that Jesus' preparation refers to his work on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. I think that it is these actions of Jesus which count as him preparing a place for his followers. Because the only way that any of us are going to get to this place Jesus speaks of is if we are forgiven of our sins and justified in God's sight. And this only comes by faith. And yet, faith in what? Well, faith in the gospel, which is the, that Christ died for our sins, he was dead, he was buried, and he rose again. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For when Christ is upon the cross, he, according to Isaiah, is literally bearing the iniquity of us all. And that it is in his wounds we are healed. And the scriptures also say that we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection proves that one day, dear saints, all of us shall rise again and go to our Father's house. And there there will be a room for each and every one of us. Therefore, it is Christ's atoning work which allows us to enter into God's presence in eternity. And therefore, Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection is what he does in order to prepare a place for us. Now, notice two things. First, that Jesus refers to the eternal state as my Father's house. My Father's house. Scripture teaches that through Christ, we are given the right to become the children of God. And Christ is our elder brother. That makes his father our father. And therefore, heaven is not some strange, weird, ethereal, floaty place. But rather, heaven is the home of our father who loves us. Of our father who loves us. Because of the fact, I think that the Bible speaks so little about what that place will be like. Most people get their understanding of heaven from Sunday morning cartoons. And and things like that. And and most of us have this idea in heaven that's, you know, we're sitting there on on clouds and, and, and we have like angel wings and stuff like that. And it's like, it could be easy to understand, you know, why someone might not really want to go there. But if we understand the reality that heaven is the home of our beloved father and that he has prepared a place for us, that there is going to be a physical place of dwelling for us in there then it, we can understand that it's like when I die, I'm going home. I'm going home. The many loved ones, many people we know who, have, who are no longer with us this morning as we worship this Lord's Day, they are with their Lord. They are with their Lord. Do you ever think about how sweet that is? How, how, how precious that is? How wonderful that is? It will be a place of comfort when we go home to be with our Father. We're going home, okay? As the one song says, we're going home. Jesus says in another place, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We will be closer with him than other ever. Paul says, you know, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but we will see as face to face come the. And And I think all of us long, long for that day. And although closely related to that last point, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And someone will say, well, he's talking to his disciples there. Yes, he is. But what he's saying to his disciples here applies to each and every Christian. I go to prepare a place for you. That is specifically you. You see, if you are one of God's precious saints, then when Jesus went to prepare that place of which he spoke, When he went to the cross, he did that, not for a nameless, faceless group, but he did that specifically for you. He died bearing your sins. His wounds healed you. That is what Christ did. Because it pleased him to love you in that way. Be encouraged by this. Be deeply encouraged by this. The love with which God loves us is incredibly personal in its nature. And I think that this should raise all of our affections. In verse 3, Christ continues and he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is just expanding on that last point that he just made, that if he truly is going to prepare this place for his followers, for all those who believe in him, then it is secured for them. It it is accomplished. They can have assurance knowing that he will come again and take you there. I, I will bring you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I think it's difficult how this can be referring to anything other than the second coming of our Lord. The scriptural teaching is that at the second coming, a trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise. Those who are remaining will join them. All of God's saints will be gathered together with Christ again in such splendid, lovely harmony and communion. And when they are caught up to meet with the Lord in the air, the promise is that they will always be with the Lord. And that that is the key thing that Jesus says here. Where I am, you may be also. Notice, Jesus specifically says that he personally is going to come again and take them personally to himself. Remember again the context. This is Jesus' farewell discourse. This is said before he goes to the cross, before he leaves them. He's already told the disciples let not your hearts be troubled believe in god believe also in me the whole point of this is to give them comfort is to give them encouragement so he specifically tells them it's going to be sad when i leave it really is it's going to be hard it's going to hurt but you and i are going to spend eternity together is that not beautiful it's like even though this text of Jesus he's speaking about last things, things you know that are going to happen you know, after we die, it's almost like the point of that is not about that. And what I mean by that is the reason that Jesus is talking to us about what eternity will be like is not for eternity itself, but he tells us this for our lives now, for our, our present benefit. Jesus is giving us this teaching on the eternal state that we will be with him forever and ever to fuel the way that we live our lives now, here, on the earth. This is to be our supreme comfort. This is to be our supreme encouragement throughout all of our lives. It's like, I am going to be with Jesus one day. I... I and and I don't just mean I. I and, and you know, some people have asked me if if the being caught up with the Lord in the air in and, and the resurrection, if that happens at the second coming, where do people go now when they die? Uh, well, Paul says that even in the meantime, those who are away from the body are present with the Lord. He gives us that great text in Philippians where he talks about you know, dying and going to be with Christ. And and as Calvin said, what Paul's saying there makes no sense if what he's saying is, it'd be better to die and go into soul sleep and then rise again years from now. No, the scriptural teaching is that when saints die right now in this life, they are with the Lord. They're not in that final, eternal state. They don't have their physical resurrected bodies up there with the Lord. In Acts chapter 7, the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen, before he dies, what does he see? He sees heaven open. He sees Jesus waiting for them. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. And so I, I know we, we often wonder about that. And, and, you know, I often think when, when our loved ones who die in the Lord... You know, people say, oh, my, my great-grandma, she she passed away not long ago. And it was very hard on us. And, you know, people will say to try and comfort and encourage one another, you know, Wilma's looking down on us or whatever. And, and, and I don't say this out loud, but in my head I always just think, I don't think she's looking down on us. I, don't think, that, I think that she's with Jesus right now. And I think that is far better than anything that's going on down here. Uh, you know, I... I I don't know if I've told this story here before. I've told this story many, many times about my great-grandfather, preacher Lester Van Meter, who preached at the Clifton Tabernacle in Clifton, West Virginia. He, when he was in his mid-50s, he had diabetes real bad. Him and his wife, they go to this doctor's appointment. And the doctor says, Lester, if you don't do something about your health, you're going to die. And he says... Well, I can't wait to meet Jesus, and he squeezed his wife's hand, and he died right there. That is, that is encouraging to me. That is how I think all of us should look at this. Does that mean that we don't, you know, take care of what we need to take care of in our lives? Does that mean we become apathetic? Does that mean that we don't engage in the culture, that we don't engage in politics, that we don't try to advance Christ's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? No, of course it doesn't mean that. But we should always remember that this life, it's not all there is. It's not all there is. I live this life for eternity. For eternity. You see, this is to characterize, this is to empower all of us. We should forever be filled with hope. We should forever be filled with joy. Even amidst the greatest of sufferings and afflictions. Knowing that Jesus loves us, that one day we are going to be with Him. What do we need to do? Well we just need to remember and obey that simple yet yet profoundly difficult command of His when He says, Let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Should not we as Christians be the most joyful? Should not we as Christians be the most contented people on this planet? I can understand why the non-believers of this world have great distress, But when we as Christians, when we find trouble in our hearts, although it is so common, remember, it is a contradiction in terms. It is a contradiction. An unhappy Christian is a contradiction. I heard one preacher say one time, he said, What are you frightened about? What are you anxious about? What are you upset about? You're a sinner and you should be in hell right now. And we never think about that. We never just stop and think, you know something? Jesus saved me. Jesus saved me. I was in darkness. I was in bondage and enslaved to my sin. And yet the light of the gospel was shown into my heart. I was drawn out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Bible says I'm a new creation in Christ. Christ came. He's my shepherd. He gave me true, meaningful life. I've been made alive in Christ Jesus. It's like, that's what I want to think about, you know? And so, what is the solution? What is the solution to our problems? Well, Jesus gave us the answer. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in what I've done for you. Believe in the blessings that I've given you. Believe in the eternal life that, is, that you possess now in which you will one day attain to the fullest. Believe in, in all of the truth of God's Word. Believe that Christ went to, to the cross, that He was preparing a place for His bride. Because a glimpse of that heavenly, a glimpse of that eternal glory will remove any and all sting that the present troubles can bring us. But the question is, do we believe? Now I realize some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. And you might think it's not necessary to say this, but I do. The reality is, it's possible that our own hearts can be deceived. And so I just want to say this because I will be burdened if I don't. These wonderful blessings that you've heard about this morning only come to those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They only come to those whom God the Father in judgment will look upon as possessing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You say, how can I be numbered amongst them? Believe. By faith, we are justified. There may be some people in this room right now who they're, they're... Salvation, they believe, is dependent upon your works or what you've done. You say, well, I've, I've, I've done this for the church and I've been doing this and I've been baptized and, and it's all just so focused upon you. But you need to remember, Isaiah says that our good works are as filthy rags before a holy God. You need Jesus Christ to save you. And so I would just earnestly exhort you to examine your heart, to see whether or not you are in the faith. Are you trusting in these external, in these outward things? Or are you trusting in what Jesus Christ has done? Now, to the Christian I say, do we really believe these things? Not just believe them and possess salvation, but do we live our lives as though we believe them? Because it's one thing to to say amen, and it's a whole other thing to live your life as though these things are true. So do we act as though we believe that Jesus Christ is the solution to all of our anxiety, that Jesus Christ is the solution to all of our worry, that Jesus Christ is the solution to all of our woe? Do we really, truly believe that Jesus Christ in the love of God is so great that those things should remove all trouble from our hearts? Jesus believes it, He believes that he is so wonderful that just believing in him will be a remedy for a troubled heart. Now, do we agree with him? Do we believe? Just as faith only comes by grace, which is the gift of God, so too do our increases in faith only come by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let us all earnestly pray. For greater and greater manifestations of the work of the Spirit, that He would continue to sanctify us, continue to grow us, continue to mature us, continue to comfort us. The Scriptures say He is our comfort, He is our helper, that we would grow in our faith all the days of our lives, that our hearts would not be troubled, and that our faith would be ever strong. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we thank you for your word that we heard this morning. Dear God, I just, I just pray earnestly and sincerely that your truth was faithfully expounded, that your truth was faithfully made known. Oh, dear God, if we are not laboring in you, we are laboring in vain. And so I, I pray that all of our worship this morning was pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. We are but humble, needy, mean sinners, dear God, and we are so dependent upon you. Continue to humble us with the realization of who you are and who we are. Oh, dear God, our souls pant for you. We crave for you. We love you, dear God. Help us to love you more. It's in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.